important factor in this book is contained in chapter 8 now for the last 200 years there's no legal definition or clear definition given to the words varna jati and caste we are very proud to say that we are one of the first in 200 years to give very relevant meaning very relevant and very precise meanings to the word varna jati and caste why we did that is that without a proper definition for these words then that's why it's being equated as being equal they mean the same caste varna and jati don't mean the same thing they are three different words A very good afternoon to all of you. Welcome to Sangam Talks. We are back with another super super interesting and very relevant session and uh to talk on this very important topic. We have three lovely speakers with us. Uh so I'll simply start with a brief introduction about the talk and the speakers and then I'll just hand it over to uh, our first speaker. So the title of the talk as you all would have already read is uh, how hindus were deceived caste is not hindu and to speak on the same we have three authors of this book uh, first one being guruji sundara rajji he is a yoga practitioner for more than 40 years and an exceptional speaker who has been promoting and teaching the ancient system of yoga to individuals from all around the world and the second speaker is his daughter akshaya simranji an academic excellence award uh, graduate in mass communication who has been instrumental in nurturing the lives of the hindu community by spreading awareness of the authentic hindu history and culture and the third speaker pradeep kumar kukreja ji an entrepreneur and a humanitarian who has created the concept of seva gurukulams in malaysia which is a non-governmental organization dedicated to transforming the lives of underprivileged families and children so uh, today our three honorable speakers are going to talk about their book caste is not hindu which should have been written and included as part of the history syllabus in schools in the year 1947 when india gained independence the caste wound is not healing and is kept this way by foreign institutions hindus of all ages need to wake up and learn the truth together we can change our history so without taking any much of your time i will directly hand it over to pradeep sir so please you may take it ahead from here namaste shruti ji thank you so much for having us on the show we are very excited to be here this is an extremely extremely important subject and as you can imagine uh, three of us we are sitting basically not in india we are in fact not even indian citizens but we are hindus we are hindus sitting in malaysia and uh, we can see how this issue of caste so called caste is affecting us not only in malaysia it's affecting us of course in bharat as well in a very big way and we see this impact of the 
caste narrative affecting Hindus all over the world. And the latest one you all probably know is what's happening in Seattle as well. Uh, there is a huge, uh, uh, what do you call, um, controversy going on now in Seattle, them passing a law about caste. So this is an, a very important issue. And one of our revered Swami, uh, who is from the Hawaii uh, Hindu movement, he once said that caste is a big stick used by the missionaries to continuously beat the Hindus. You know, they, they found this one very convenient tool to continuously keep beating the Hindus, and that tool is called the caste. Unfortunately, we do not seem to know how to defend ourselves we are, when we are being beaten by this stick, which is called caste. Now, first and foremost, this caste narrative is a fake narrative. It is only 200 years old, invented by the British and trust upon the Hindus. But we don't seem to know that history. Most Hindus do not seem to know that history. And we have been feeling the impact of this caste narrative always being trust on us and being beaten by this caste stick. So myself, Guruji Sundararaj and Akshya Simran, we decided more than about a year and a half ago, let's take the bull by the horn. Because we knew somewhere behind us that this is not Hindu. Definitely, uh, Bhagwan Krishna did not go and say you are on a higher caste and you are on lower caste and things like that. In fact, he has never used the word caste anywhere in our scriptures. The only word Bhagwan Krishna has used ever is the word Varna. Right? And the Varna talks about four uh, attributes of a human being and you have to decide where you belong. But this was twisted, convoluted by the British about 200 years ago and put onto us. But somehow 200 years, it's a very long time. Maybe 15, 20 generations have, have, have gone, uh, passed by and this has become as though it is part of our scriptures. So we, we decided that uh, we will take this bull by the horn and we will slowly bring it to the world that this has nothing to do with our Hindu Dharma. So there was a, a battle in uh, in Bharat in 1757 called the Battle of Plessy in Bengal with the British who just barely won that battle. In fact, uh, I think the, the Indian army could have won, but the British somehow won it. And that was really a turning point. And they realized that the Hindus need to be divided for us to be able to control them in the future, you know. So that is where this whole thing, uh, the narrative started. And uh, this book will also show there is no such word as Brahmin. There's no such word as Brahmin in our Hindu scriptures. The four Varnas recognized by the Shastras are Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Sudra. How come the word Kshatriya remains intact? Vaishya remains intact, Shudra remains intact, but Brahmana became Brahmin. You know, this is very interesting and uh, it's very unfortunate that we don't know. Also, we want to put on the table, where did the word Dalit come from? Dalit is not part of the four Varnas, so how come we also have Dalit now in the, uh, in the caste system? 
where did the word harijan come from the harijan also being referred to very often in the caste system so all this is very cunningly done and it is to create a hate amongst hindus brahmana was twisted as brahmin and basically brahmanas were people of knowledge you see so another very important thing i want to place to everybody and i say this with a lot of respect uh, to our gurus and swamis because they have done tremendous amount of work but i think there has been one mistake somewhere along the way that when for example i'll take the bhagavad gita when the bhagavad gita was translated in the last 50 75 years or maybe even 100 years by many of our gurus and swami ji's and revered scholars where the word varna appeared they translated that word as caste okay so varna we must firstly understand varna is not caste secondly jati is not caste but because of this 200 years or so of brainwashing and narrative building by the british when they invented this caste system even our scholars even our gurujis and our swamijis and i like i said i say this with all respect because they have done so much of good work but when they translated the translated the bhagavad gita from sanskrit to english and when the word varna appeared they put the word into the bhagavad gita in the english translation as caste that is a huge blunder and that needs to be corrected to so the moment they kind of verified that varna means caste then caste became what it actually means in the spanish and portuguese terminology of blood lineage whereas varna in its original sense is not blood lineage so our research tells us that varna cannot be translated as caste in english and neither can jati be translated as caste in english there is no one equivalent english word to explain varna or to explain jati these two words have to be explained in a paragraph maybe to give the correct meaning so uh shruti ji in the next 45 minutes we will do a quick overview of the book and proof to all our listeners and all the hindus out there and also the non hindus out there that varna is not caste jati is not caste and that the caste concept was created and thrust onto the hindus by the british about 200 years ago the first so called caste census caste census was created or the caste questionnaire was created and conducted by the british in the then province of punjab that was the first time where they where they tested this caste concept you know in the province of punjab and this is also well explained in the book so now we know about uh, what's going on all over the world and now also our our friends or foes or or enemies or whatever we call them uh, all over the world have now created the caste uh, race theory crt you know uh, now the caste race theory is something that's being sort of popularized everywhere and somehow this is being connected with the hindus 
And this is happening in a very frightening manner in the U.S. and especially in the Silicon Valley, where companies now beginning to introduce concept of the caste race theory, and they they talk about how the Hindus very casteist. So we need to break this with this fake narrative, and I think this book helps in that process. So in chapter one of this book, we talk about medieval Europe. We actually talk about how. Uh, let's say in the 14th century or so, or probably before that, how Europe was so primitive. Whereas during that same period of time, actually Bharat was was very very progressive. Uh, in fact, Bharat had uh, great mathematicians, scientists, and studies and universities like Nalanda and Taksashila already existing. Well, this was not existing at all in Europe. In fact, to give you an example, how medieval or, or backward the, the thinking was at that time in Europe, even uh, our great scientist uh, we call Galileo, you know, he was imprisoned for life for his theories that the sun was at the center of the universe and the earth was revolving around the sun. But the scripture says something else. Now for him to even speak about this, he was imprisoned for life. Okay, So, so that shows that uh, the, the era of science had not evolved you know, but during that time, Bharat was a very highly developed uh, scientific civilization. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the largest economy in the world as well, with 24 or 25% of the world GDP. So chapter one explains that. Chapter uh, two explains that Bharat was arguably the richest place on earth before the invasions started. Okay, the artifacts of the Indus civilizations are carbon dated up to 8,000 years. Okay? And many of these other uh, so-called civilizations or religions, 2,000 years old, 1,500 years old, so on and so forth, you see. So our scriptures date back easily 5,000 years before the BC era, 5,000 BC, before Christ's era. That's how developed we, we we were, you know. And we want people to understand first that we were not a backward society. Nobody came and civilized us. Secondly, we were, we were not only not a backward society, we were a very advanced society. And, uh, and in fact, we were offering education to the world. And in universities like Nalanda and Taksashila, we had students coming from China, from Middle East, from Southeast Asia to study there. So all this, I think, was one day discovered by the European invaders. And they said, let's go and conquer this land, this place, and let's see how we can then take the riches away from those countries. So the third thing, uh, which is also a very important thing, is this thing known as a papal bull. This comes in our chapter three, the papal bull. The papal bull, I think, Probably 95%, if I may say, if not 99% of Hindus may not even have heard of the word papal bull. Okay, But the papal bull is a decree or law issued by no other than the Pope, which was instrumental in the push toward the European colonization of the world. Okay, It was almost an enactment of law in the 15th century by the Pope, nobody else, by the Pope. And it states that any land not inhabited by Christians 
was available to discover, be claimed, and be exploited. The Pope told the Christians, any land not inhabited by Christians, you can go there, discover that land, claim that land, exploit that land. And that papal bull is in effect even today. A lot of information regarding that is available online. And I think every Hindu should go and read what the papal bull is. And finally, before I hand over, the the, the, the next thing we will cover in chapter 4 is about slavery. Slavery was justified by St. Thomas Aquinas that some men were by nature meant to be physical instruments of slave owners. So in the mid-17th century, the invaders using uh, what St. Thomas has said actually commercialized, legalized and introduced slavery to the world in the 17th century where they colonized, captured, shackled and took people in as slaves, literally as human cargo. And this we know was very, very popular, not just in Africa, even in India. Indians were sent to faraway lands in South America, in Suriname, in Fiji, in Mauritius, and so on and so forth, South Africa, in the concept of slavery, actually. So even slavery was created by them, and they made human beings as commodities. Let me continue uh, the history, because it's very important to know how it developed. Before we go into the section of caste itself, it's very important to know the history before and what happened after. So, as Dr. Pradeep had stated, the next one in Chapter 5, we actually cover the colonization by the West. Colonization uh, was actually a very brutal practice that caused uh, immense harm to the colonized countries. The colonizers presented themselves as saviors, claiming that they came to civilize the conquered lands and their people. But their reality was far from it. They forced their education system and language on the colonized people and even forced them to forget their mother tongue. This led to the loss of cultural identity and a distorted historical record regarding colonialism. Some might even say that colonization brought modernization and development to these ancient civilizations or indigenous lands. But I ask you, at what cost? Because the colonizers enriched themselves by exploiting the resources and labor of, of these indigenous lands or countries. They turned human beings into nothing more than a trading community, like what Dr. Pardeep had stated earlier. They invented slavery itself. They impoverished the colonized countries, leaving them unable to come out of poverty until today. Most of us only recognize England, Netherlands and France as the prominent colonizers. But when we think about it, the truth is actually all the European or mostly all the European countries had used the same colonization model to take wealth from indigenous lands. The colonization model was simply an excuse to siphon off uh, native produce, which the colonizers legitimized through the papal bull. One example of such colonization was when Portugal executed the Inquisition in Goa. 
countless hindus were brutally murdered and forcefully converted as well they had destroyed more than 350 temples this was known as the goa inquisition and it was the most violent inquisition ever which brings us to the next uh, chapter we kept uh, we stopped at goa inquisition now in chapter 6 why it was important for us to speak about goa inquisition in particular is because when the inquisition was imposed on the people of goa in 1561 there was when the word casta known today as caste was also introduced because portuguese uh, viewed other civilizations through their own lens of social hierarchy known as the caste system this system divides people into different groups with those at the top holding the most power and influence which is the royals so the royals or those at the very top of the hierarchy remain in power until today the portuguese destroyed all religious places and temples in goa in their pursuit of converting the local population however after demolishing hundreds of temples the colonizers confiscated its artifacts and properties claiming it belonged to them they also had banned languages like konkani marathi and also sanskrit forcing the goanese people to learn and speak only portuguese they were prohibited from wearing their traditional clothes this is how far they had taken the inquisition so even getting married according to the hindu's culture chanting the mantras or wearing the holy uh, necklace which is also known as mangal sutra was prohibited if you do that then you're straight away punished for it so they took anything hindu anything deemed like that they believe it to be uncultured uh, or something that is of savage so whoever even uh, prayed to black idols they say that these people worship uh, people who are the gods resembling demons hence they tortured all the hindus and forced them to convert now goa inquisition is a classic example of how power was used to achieve control as well as a means to confiscate the victims properties to enrich the colonizers the pain and suffering inflicted on this people traumatized them for countless of generations so similarly many other colonizers conquered different parts but the british eventually gained control over most of bharat through their imperial power so in chapter 7 we talk about the british invasion this actually uh, focuses more on our uh, east india company and it came about in 1608 to bharat in the name of trading and establishing factories so they set up the east india company which had the exclusive right to control trade in bharat and greater asia in 1612 now the company had signed a treaty with jahangir khan who was the muslim king at that time which gave them the permission to reside and establish factories in surat however later on during king charles ii's reign the company was granted greater powers to act as parliament including the ability to acquire territory and exercise civil and criminal jurisdiction over those territories now the east india company which initially came to bharat for trading purposes eventually just just like that they beginning they came only to do trading but eventually they became the most powerful administrator and ruler with the authority granted by the british government later on 
the Indian rebellion took place in the year 1857. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of you have heard the uh, Indian rebellion, or it is also known as Sepoy Mutiny. But that is entirely from the colonist's point of view, that it was a rebellion and it was a mutiny. But if we analyze it well, then we'll understand that from our Hindu's point of view, it is actually a freedom fight of the soldiers against the East India Company's rule, which led the British to take direct control of Bharat. The 1857 rebellion failed. The British wanted to ensure that another similar event would never ever happen again. So that was when they took concrete steps in dividing the Hindus permanently. Because if anything, another rebellion, the same one has happened where all the jati groups or different jati groups of people came together. They rose together to fight against the British, which was a near win for Hindus themselves. So if this thing happened again, the British knew that they could not fight them off. So the plan that they had uh, devised or schemed at that time was to divide or break this Hindu community. And this is actually the real reason why they divided the jatis and manipulated them to fit into a hierarchical order in order to create conflict between the Hindu community forever, which is stands until today. I hope everyone can hear me clearly. Um, this book, Task is Not Hindu, it's a very important text. I wouldn't say it's a, uh, just a normal book. It's an important text on the history of uh, the caste narrative. Okay. And uh, main thing is everyone should understand if we want to negate something, then if we just say it out of our mind, then it's uh, just our opinion. And our opinion has only validity to a certain extent. And beyond that, it has uh, no real uh, substance. So this book records all the historical evidence. All the historical evidence and most of this evidence we have taken from the British records themselves. Thank, thank God that the British have a very good habit of recording down all, yeah, uh, uh, implementation or whatever colonization period, whatever they did, they recorded it down very clearly in uh, different different uh, uh, journals and magazines and books and all that, even their reports. So a lot of the records that we have actually was taken from the census uh, reports of 1881, 1901, and uh, so forth. So all these uh, are contained in the book and. Um, the most important factor that uh, we have to emphasize, people have to know, especially Hindus have to know that very well. Everybody, from young children to elderly people, they must understand one thing clearly. The invaders came to Bharat not as friends. I think a lot of people have become delusional. In their way of thinking, you know, they feel very romantic about London, you know, America and all these things because that's how the narrative is. But they came with a purpose to take the wealth of Bharat totally 
And once they found that there was so much wealth, they milked it until there was nothing left. Okay. So the, our book, uh, in our book, we highlight all these things like what, uh, okay. Um, the most important factor in this book is contained in chapter eight. Now, for the last 200 years, there's no legal definition or clear definition given to the words Varna, Jati, and caste. We are very proud to say that we are one of the first in 200 years to give very relevant meaning, very relevant and very precise meanings to the word Varna, Jati, and caste. Why we did that is that without a proper definition for these words, then that's why it's being equated as being equal. They mean the same. Kas, Varna and Jati don't mean the same thing. They are three different words, right? Two of it is Indian language, Hindu language, Sanskrit, and one of it is English. And in our book, we are the first to give a clear definition. Varna means inner aptitude of a person based on the gunas. It's in the scriptures, it's in the Shastras, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Vedas and all that. So it's very clear. There's no doubt about the meaning of Varna. And Varna stays Varna. It can't be translated to any other language. And same with Jati. There's a clear history, clear meaning. The Jati denoted a professional group. Okay, professional work group or clan. And that's what its meaning is. It's not race-based. It's not blood-based. No such thing. You can't find it in any of the scriptures. But caste is a blood-based lineage social hierarchy system of the Portuguese, Spanish, and a few other Western countries. And everybody knows this. I think everybody knows this quite well. Right? But the British cleverly took the different jatis and they were in records, there were more than 30,000 jatis. In the records, there were more than 30,000 jatis. They meshed all together and tried to put it into the four-layered system. Okay? And they tried to make them all fit into the four-layered system. And this is the problem that cropped up because they kept on doing it in every census. It started in 1872. 1881, 1891, 1901, and, and, and went on. And also, after independence, uh, it carried on. So what happened was, it's more than three generations of Hindu people So this we have highlighted in the book. And it is very important for everyone to understand that since there is no legal definition for this, then when there's no legal definition, like what is happening in Seattle now and a few other things in the U.S., people must understand then the point of reference will become history. If there's no legal, legal precedence, history becomes the point of reference. So, 
And in history, we have to clearly outline what it means, what it says, what is the time period, what are the records for people to, you know, check back again because there is a validity in it. There's a legal validity in history. And this is what we have pointed out in the book with the definitions and everything. And further, we have also highlighted when they started doing this, it was the policy to divide and rule. Okay, Divide and rule is a practice of the British. Everybody knows that. Any country they colonized, they divided it by either by race, by religion, by ethnicity, or skin color. They will find something to divide, and they are very successful in it, and uh, we can't deny the fact. Okay, So they went on to create all these relevant questions in the census questionnaire so that it became a normal practice in every country. You know, uh, we can't just think that in India alone they are uh, recorded this in the caste issue and all that. They did it in Myanmar, they did it in Malaysia, they did it in all other colonies in Africa, everywhere. Somehow or other they found a way to divide. And so the census was used as a dividing tool. And uh, we have given a lot of examples in the book. Uh, for example, uh, Daniel Ibbotson was the census commissioner for the 1881 census of uh, uh, India, especially Punjab, right? So what he has recorded that they could manufacture, this is all words, they could manufacture overnight from 58 known Brahmins. Please note the word Brahman. It was written in the record as Brahman, not Brahmin. Brahman. And overnight they had 1.779 million Brahmins. Okay. Official was 58, but they recorded overnight 1.779 million Brahmins as anybody who was associated with the temple or, or anything like that tribal priests, everybody was uh, listed down as a Brahman because they wanted to increase the number of Brahmins. So this was done purposely as a manipulative format and it's been recorded down by them that they did it. And the best part is during the census, they had a person in charge, an officer of the British rulers in charge who was called the census writer. Nowhere in the world you will find such a word except during the British census in India. That's where it started. So the job of the census writer was to write in, write in any caste and any number he liked according to the demographics of a particular locality. It's very clear. You know, and they recorded it in all the places all over India whenever they did the census. So, by this evidence, we know that they went on a very aggressive onslaught to manipulate the data. So, when we know they, they went on an aggressive onslaught to manipulate the data, then we must ask the question, why? Why do they want to manipulate the data? Right? And... The main reason is to divide and rule. And to divide and rule is to divide the jati groups. So they broke the professional group 
and then they created the Brahman, right, to become more, and then they added, you see, Varna system is four layers. Everybody knows Varna system, there's only Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra. Where did the fifth layer come from? So what they did is, they took what they know in Portugal, Spain, in Europe, what they practice in their media, from their medieval times, they practice their uh, caste system, and so they had four layer, and the fifth layer was slaves. So when they came to India, they manipulated everything to fit into this four plus one system, four layered caste system, add slaves. So as the slaves in India became the Dalits, became the untouchable. So all these terms also were coined by them. Yeah, untouchable is an English word. When you translate untouchable to, to Sanskrit, Right? It doesn't mean Dalit, it doesn't mean Harijan. Dalit has a different meaning, Harijan has a different meaning, untouchable is a different meaning. But we are made to think they mean the same. This is how, how clever they are. This is how smart they are, cunning. And same they did with the caste system also. The caste system doesn't exist in India. Right? But it's been implemented. We are talking about the history before Independence before even Gandhi came to India. This is the history in the 18th century and 19th century and before, very much before Gandhi and Dr. Ambedkar. So a lot of people will tell that, oh, okay, this is no, Dr. Ambedkar said this, Gandhi said this. He said no. Please learn the history properly. This is prior to Gandhi and Dr. Ambedkar and this is how they manipulated, including Gandhi and Dr. Ambedkar got, got caught in these lies, including them. Okay, and all of us also till today in India especially. So we have highlighted in the book that the census questionnaire was used as an instrument to manipulate data to fit their divide and rule policy. So anybody who reads the book, they will understand that, oh, okay, this is how they did it. And they find unit to every different locality and every different country that they colonized. Okay. That's the uh, most important aspects of uh, uh, what is written in our book according to the historical records that we found. And then they went on further. They went on further and they did it very, very cleverly. Now, in the records of 1881, the census officer has written it as Brahman, denoting Brahmanas. But as they went on, 1891, 1901, 1910, if I'm not wrong, around that time period, Brahman became Brahmin. Now, we have checked in many places with a lot of Sanskrit professors and all, and some of them also don't know the origin of the word Brahmin. They say Brahmin is a colloquial term, you know, people use it loosely and all that. In Sanskrit, there's nothing loose. In Sanskrit, there's nothing loose. Sanskrit is very precise. So, Brahmana is Brahman. Brahmana means what they, in, in the British did, they, they made it Brahman. So, I always tell people, I always ask the question. We have the term Brahman, which according to Sanskrit, according to Hindus, it means the formless aspect. 
of the universal consciousness very simply put very very small point very simply put we have the brahman then we have brahma the aspect with form brahman is with the end is the formless we drop the end is brahma is with the form then we have brahmana someone who studies about the brahman someone who studies about the brahman is brahmana then we have brahmi Brahmi is a Sanskrit word meaning the Devi with the aspect of Brahma is Brahmi. It's a female goddess. You simply say it's a female goddess. Then what is Brahmin? What is the word Brahmin connoting? What does it mean? So when we look at the dictionary, we've highlighted in our book the Monia Monia Sanskrit English Dictionary, which was first published in the year 1851. in england and at that time in 1851 the term they used was brahman in the dictionary meaning uh, the priest or pandit you know also a, a scholar a student a teacher it has that carried that kind of meaning but over the years from 1881 1891 1901 change no more brahman was not there it became brahmin and when it became brahmin it was said an upper caste priest upper caste pandit so here we can very clearly see number 1 they the english spent money took the trouble and time to print the sanskrit english dictionary which they don't have authority to do in simple english is none of your their, their business we know that But they went on to do it. Why? The question is why. And the Sanskrit English Dictionary of 1851 was funded, financed by the East India Company, the very company that colonized India. Right. So they went on to publish this dictionary, and over the years, the terminology, the meaning, everything changed. Brahmin changed, then the caste system came in. Everything. The reason being. they knew that in in the in the preface of the 1851 uh, dictionary they have written and is by the east india college in england they have written that all hindus recognize sanskrit as the channel of truth okay so in order to manipulate the knowledge they have to pre publish things in sanskrit and then all other local dialects will extract the meaning from the sanskrit dictionary and sanskrit books the vedas and all that and they will use it and take it willingly without even thinking because sanskrit is the channel of truth and that's what they did and we have proven in the book we have proven all the historical data starting from uh, uh, monia monia williams max muller okay max muller was also hired by the east india company he was hired by east india company and that's the only job he had his whole life you know so and he was hired to edit and translate sacred eastern works including the rigveda including the asian other asian books everything and even if other indologists and other people they translated the books 
he will still re-add it again so that the meaning will be same in all the books. So if they say in the Rig Veda, if they say Varna is caste, then all other books will follow the same and mention Varna as caste. And this is how they have been redoing and republishing all these years until now. And whatever books was edited and translated by Max Mueller and many other Indologists are reference material in all the universities of the world. So when somebody now in this present era, they want to do research and write a book, they have to refer back to this book. And if they can't see the fault, in the original translation, then they are gone. We are going to repeat all the lies again and again. Because we, we found a lot of the interpolations, which is the problem that Hindu scholars don't study and they believe this is true. You know, and this is not true. Varna is not caste. Yati is not caste. It's clearly the definitions are different. So, this whole manipulation game, we have to realize. And we must teach our children to realize that, yeah, that this, this kind of things are happening. And uh, we have to be very careful on our, our language, the terminology, and what we speak in the world. And we, we should stop using the word Brahmin. We should use the term Brahmana. We should stop using the word caste. We should use the word Varna or Jati. Because when you go back to the original terminology, then the real meaning will come to the form. And everybody will understand, oh, this is what our people mean. This is what the scriptures are saying. And this is what is the manipulation. There is manipulation and there is a real good reason behind this. They want us to be divided and they want to break the Hindus so that they all can be converted. That's their master plan. And they are very cunning and very, what you call, futuristic in the sense they are carrying on for 200 years and they are not going to let go. We have to take up the fight. And we have to uh, reach out to our people, advise them to understand that this is for real and this is why we are having uh, problems in between us. And now, from England, it's been transferred to U.S. I hope everybody can open their eyes and see. The, the baton has been passed to America. And in America, this fight is going on in uh, all the universities and everywhere. And uh, my, my sincere, I urge everyone, read this book because the historical evidence we've given in a very concise manner. And we, we could have written volumes of this book with the, with the, Materials we research, but we didn't want to do that. We made it a very summarized book because then from children to scholars can read this book and whoever is interested, they can follow through with the citations we've given to go and read further to find out more things about this whole caste narrative. Thank you to all our three speakers for a wonderful session. Uh, for the benefit of our audience members, I've pasted the link to the book. Uh, in the chat box. So you can go on Amazon and buy it. So before directly uh, opening the session uh, for the audience members to put their questions, I would like to take the liberty to recite a poem which Akshaya has written in our foreword of the book. 
it's a very beautiful summary she has given there so i would like to take this liberty to recite it for our audience members it goes as history is a collection of past events but varna was recorded under false pretenses countless of kingdoms had evaded bharat first two nations were by far the worst do remember how terrible were the portuguese tortured and brutally converted all the goanis the biddings of the kings they fulfilled in the name of god they killed the british invaders though human were heartless their greed schemes and massacres were endless how they fabricated and implemented caste system simply to exploit wealth bharat their victim as our book un- unravels what was concealed this day forth truth shall be revealed imprint the narrative caste is not hindu into the minds of children and and the world too so with this now i open the floor for the audience to ask their questions shruti ji thank you so much and thank you so much to all the speakers i've heard you before and uh, um i have yet to get your book but thank you i really i know some of the information but it's lovely to hear i have a couple of questions and just a comment at the end simple questions i know that previously before thomas aquinas brought up uh, this thing about slavery um that obviously there were different communities across the world and different cultures they used to have these um conflicts and wars in those cases did the winning party usually take some sort of a prisoner of war type of situation for the losing party did that ever happen or that kind of slavery also did not exist before thomas um, aquinas formally created that can i can i answer that uh, aditi ji is uh, um in the normal situation out of bharat okay see bharat was ruled by dharmic laws so slavery was not allowed prisoners of war is different it's a two different uh, situation but outside of bharat in the middle east and in the western countries those who lost the war were taken as slaves Okay. and it's been going on from i think before uh uh in bc era rome greek and a lot of uh, you know we have read a lot of the historical facts in this true okay. they took personal bharat it was not allowed because of the karma and reincarnation is the universal principles of uh, hindu dharma so it is not allowed but they had prisoners they didn't have slaves okay. i hope i answered your question Um, yes partly thank you guruji but i just wanted to ask the prisoners of wars that they took in those times um how how did they treat them that was so different from slavery if you could just give a little bit of uh, insight into that thank you okay i i, I think uh, there's a, a few very good books uh, of uh, our history and um, especially of shivaji uh, Mah- uh, of maratha no shivaji maharaj where many times that uh, he when he won the war also he released and uh, many people even um, mohammad ghazli if i'm not wrong when he invaded the northern part of punjab and all that pakistan earlier bharat when he lost he was released so he could come back and wage for 18 times 
If not, the the history won't be there. Then he came back for 18th time and he won and conquered the, that part of Bahrain. So they were honorably released if they surrendered, and that was the dharmic uh, duty to do, right? Even uh, I'm not sure about the uh, Greek uh, history, not very well. But the Bharat one is uh, they were released most of the time. Either they died in war battle or if they lost. They So uh, there, there are records, clear historical records that uh, most of them were released after they surrendered when they lost the war. That was the normal thing to do. Thank you. That answered that question. I had another one that was, um, I think you guys were mentioning about the whole mess that has been created, equating caste with Jati Varna and other aspects. Um, and you mentioned that there was a lot of manipulation before which I will be reading your book. Was I have heard that there was also some misunderstandings and misinterpretations on the part of outsiders because they had a certain system in their society so they genuinely misunderstood and they misinterpreted how our society was organized and they superimposed their views onto it was there any element of that or was it mostly just manipulation the agenda was already clear in their minds excellent question aditi now when i come to invade bharat to loot all their wealth Uh, I don't know how I can have a good side on one side and I am evil on the other side. <laughs> so it not, was not misrepresentation. It was purposefully imposed to forever divide Hindus. Believe me, because why I say that is the Raja Raja Chola. The history says Raja Raja Chola was backed by a Merchant group comprising 500 jatis. Okay, it's called Ainurover or Aihole. You can Google it, and it's in the culverts of uh, South India. Uh, his financial support came from the 500 jati groups for him to expand in trade, mercantile. Naval, everything to the whole world, especially to Southeast Asia, China, Vietnam, and all that. So the powerhouse behind every Hindu king was the jati groups. So when they purposely broke the jati groups, the king's power was taken away. Until now, it's not recovered. It's not recovered. Okay. So there was no misrepresentation because. Why I clearly say there's no misrepresentation when it comes to this uh, caste manipulation is it didn't happen in India. It was planned in England by the East India Company when they hired Max Muller and they hired a lot of other people. They started the East India College, okay, with all their ill-gotten wealth from uh, Bharat, and uh, they. Published the Sanskrit-English dictionary. So when you look at and a lot more books, a lot more things were translated. They had a whole cabinet ruling India from UK. Okay, they had a whole cabinet, ministers, funded, and they in England the system you have to understand the system of England. They have a privy council, which advises the government or the uh, prime minister, the king. Queen and the ministers, the Privy Council, who originally were a lot of them were from the court of directors of the East India Company. You must understand how the East India Company worked. 
to understand how the extent they manipulated in order to keep on colonizing India. Uh, my, our contention is that although India gained independence, it's still being manipulated, and that is our second book coming out in the hopefully in the uh, this year or early next year. They are still manipulating through all the institutions. Okay, the Western countries are very good in creating institutions. Uh, okay, there's a right word is lobby groups. Institutions are lobby groups. Okay, now very simple. I, I, I will just say one because I don't want to go on too long. The Turkey Farmers Association promotes Thanksgiving. You must understand that. Okay, the Apple Farmers Association inserted the rhyme "An apple a day keeps the doctor away." Go and check it. It's history. An apple a day keeps the doctor away was suggested by the Apple Farmers Association. That's how the lobby groups work. And there was a time in the 1920s when doctors promoted smoking as good, good for your health. So you must understand the Western countries, everything is economy driven and all their institutions are therefore pushing the economic agenda. So now, sorry to say, the soya bean Producers Association is behind the vegan push. Sorry to say, but you have to come to know what they are doing. Okay, so there was no misrepresentation. It was purposefully, and till now they are doing it. It's still on. Guruji explained so beautifully. Um, I am not as well read or as not as accomplished as any of you, but I did have one observation for one of the things you mentioned in the end. Um, you mentioned about uh, Max Miller's uh, manipulation of our texts and then subsequently people using that as a source text, therefore leading to a whole uh, barrage of problems and just perpetuating the same uh, problems uh, of conflating caste with Jati and Varna, etc. I thought that um, that's one of the things that definitely leads to the problem. But I just wanted to add that even when Hindu Indians in India are reading the original text, they, they are using a fundamental mental infrastructure that's oriented towards a Western way of applying one's mind. So they tend to think in narratives. They tend to think in ideologies. They tend to stereotype binary think. And they also, I've noticed, they tend to make assumptions, jump to conclusions. Now, that is the way your mind is applying itself. The moment you apply that way, even if you read our texts, even if you are pro-Bharat, pro-Hinduism, identify as a Hindu and read the original texts in Sanskrit even, <laughs> you can still fall prey to um, looking at things in a, along the lenses of your mind, the way your mind is applying. I think that along with uh, the other aspect, which is applicable to everyone, which is our samskaras, our tendencies and our, uh, you know, what level of development we are spiritually in this lifetime. That is what we will bring into interacting with anything in life. So when we read the original text, even if we read in Sanskrit, even if we part of a matha and we have gone through Vedic education, it does not, you know, we are using the Western idea of certification. There. Oh, this person's from a matha. Fine, we can respect people for their knowledge, but doesn't necessarily mean that everything they are saying is correct because it depends on their samskara level of development and how they are using their mind. And we tend to miss that. And I think that is where the mental uh, the mental colonization is most um, prominent 
and most missed by everyone. People are thinking that we have the wrong story. We should get the right story. I agree with that. We need to have the right information and get rid of the wrong information. But we need to get the right state of mind. The mind needs to know how to apply itself the Hindu way, not the Western way, where we just read and academics and we're using people's references and resources, which means we are only looking at all the socially prominent people. We give no value to people who don't have social prominence as though they are incapable of intelligence. Like I'm talking about cosmic intelligence. As though they are incapable of, I mean, they've come, we all are fruits of our karma. So who everyone has become is because of whatever they have done over so many births. And that is what we are manifesting and we are growing in this birth. So whatever someone has achieved in this birth, even if it's zero socially, who knows what they have achieved spiritually over the previous births. If we only give prominence to prominent writers and use those as references and say, well, therefore it, if I'm talking to any Tom, Dick and Harry and say, no, no, Swami Vivekananda said this. So yours, your word is, doesn't count because he is Swami. Now I have a great deal of respect for all our gurus and teachers. Yeah, right. I think we stop thinking and we are using the Western model there too, because their academic model is designed that way. Only prominent people, we use their readings. We refer to them. Everybody else is a non-expert, not value. Whereas the Hindu way is, you respect every individual for who they are. You go in with an open mind, listen to them, and you use your mind properly to understand whether they are making sense or not, irrespective of what they have studied, what their social position is, or who they are quoting. And that is where I think the mental colonization has happened. So even when they are not reading the Max Mueller thing and using that as a source, they are still saying things like, this Jati Varna is all over our Shastras. Hindus are to be blamed. We need to change our regressive. You know, because that mentality has not changed in how to understand yes. it. So even when you all are explaining, they won't, I don't think they'll be receptive to understanding it because no. of that mental infrastructure is messed up. No. Our just, fight is with Hindus only. To, 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 to conclude what you're saying, Aditi, our fight is with Hindus only. Okay? Not with other people because the moment we can accept what, what you're saying is, what you said is beautiful. Perfect. You know, I can't say it anything any better. It's two two things to what you said. I just want to add on. Number one, we are all Macaulay's children, even I. Okay, they broke the gurukulam so that we don't learn in our own Indic languages. So I always explain in a very simple way. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita they say, Swami Prabhupada said it beautifully. You are what you think, you are what you eat. So our thought is based on the language we think in. The extent of our thought is based on the extent of our vocabulary. Right? So the uneducated people have very limited vocabulary, so they are called uneducated. The educated people have a very expensive vocabulary, as much as the dictionary can contain, and they become the doyens and scholars. Very simple. So our problem is we are master in English. Our own mother tongue, we are not have mastered because it's the lingua franca of the world. English is the lingua franca for business and everything nowadays. But lucky we are intelligent. Hindus are intelligent enough to learn more than one language and be master of more than one language. So that saves us. Uh, for us, the three authors is very simple. The very simple formula we have. Whenever you see a translation that in the in the translation the word Brahmin appears, it's wrong. 
the author doesn't understand what it means. When the word caste appears, it's wrong. So because they have uh, taken it from the model of Max Muller. So when you read a translated scripture in English, you have to look for these points where they, if the wrong words are there, wrong meanings are there, then it's a corrupted form of our scriptures. So you can read a book that is, has these meanings, but if you replace the meaning with the original meaning, you're fine. You're fine. So you can find the fault and rectify the fault. You know, you can uh, blanco the wrong words and put the right words in, you're fine. That's number one is because we are Macaulay's children. Number two, every Hindu should never forget. We are bound. We believe. Number one, we have reincarnation. They don't have reincarnation. And the yeah, principles of karma. These two are the pillars of Hinduism, Vedic thought, and the total opposite of the Abrahamic religions. They have one life, one heaven, one God, one everything. We have all multiple because of the principle of reincarnation and karma. And if you believe in the principle of reincarnation and karma, like what you explained just now, then the caste issue is not our problem. You cannot be a casteist if you understand the principles of karma and reincarnation because whatever you do, you will get it back. You have to be reborn and pay the debt. And you won't do. So very simply summarize, you know. And, and our advice always to every Hindu is that please, please, please capture your mother tongue again. Please learn your mother tongue. It will come back very fast. You never forget. Right? And mother tongue is very important. And the gurukulams, like what our, our co-author Pargiti has done in Malaysia, he's created 17 gurukulams free of charge for poor children. So the gurukulams are very important in bringing back our heritage. And at, at this point of time, when we are talking, he's pushing the, for the temples to start gurukulams back in, in the temple premises. So we Hindus have to take up the fight. And what you said is very beautiful, very precise, and the colonial mindset is, is just the change of our mind. Okay, You will never be converted in your lifetime because of the way you think, you know. So that's how every Hindu, Hindu should be. And um, we will, the, the, I hope everybody understands, I have to say this, the Renaissance is already there. The Hindus have already awakened. It's only now the implementation process they have to work out and they have to implement to protect Hinduism. Okay? Bharat is the only Hindu country I know. I can't go anywhere else, although I'm out of Bharat. I think uh, every Hindu should value that very, very uh, deeply, you know. Because there's no other spiritual place for us. So we have to pro protect Bharat and everything that comes with it. Uh, with all our energy and our whole life. Thank you. I'll stop here. <laughs> we won't stop. Yes, sir. Indeed, decolonization of mind is the first step in this entire process. And uh, there has been so many scholarly work uh, which has already already been started in this subject. We have a few speakers uh, of our channel also who are working really closely for the cause. Uh, and the top of, at the top of my mind, I can only recall Jaisai Deepakji. Uh, he has been doing extremely excellent work in this field with his trilogy, India that is Bharat. 
and other than him also ravi singh choudhary ji is also working on the decolonization of the mind so whosoever is interested to get more uh, deep into this topic feel free to refer to their books so uh, pradeep ji uh, would you like to add something to this subject and also uh, give a brief about the seva gurukulams uh let me just add something uh, very very simple here that you know if i'm not mistaken the first university in uh, europe started in 1811 whereas our documents will show you that bharat had 800000 lakh gurukulams before the invasion started 8 lakh gurukulams that's the extent of how developed our knowledge system was today i'm told there are probably uh, i stand corrected on this number but probably there are about 40000 gurukulams only left in the whole of bharat from 8 lakhs you know so this just gives you the extent of how advanced our knowledge system was and how they destroyed it and to what level it was brought and in the process of losing our knowledge we actually lost a lot of things on the way well the good news is uh, as guruji mentioned just now i think there is a renaissance there's a revival and we can see this happening so on this gurukulam concept here in malaysia see uh, what we have done is and this started about uh, just over 3 years ago we we found a similar pattern where there is a poor cluster of indian and specifically hindus in malaysia you know uh, we have a population of about uh 5% that is close to about 2 million indians of which uh you can say 40% of them are in the poor uh, category they they live in below the poverty line 40% of indians live below the poverty line so after looking at so many things doing a lot of research we realized the only way now we can bring these children out of poverty and not to become like their parents who are laborers who were brought into this country as indentured labor which is a nice word for slavery uh, the only way to bring them out of this cycle of poverty is to give them education and uh, so we we did a pilot project about 3 years ago we went into a poor area we set up a gurukulam inside that poor area so the children still live with their parents but the parents are out all day because they go to work and the children go to school so after school what we did was we told the children you come straight to our gurukulams we will take care of you until the evening until your parents come home otherwise the children are left astray between the time after school and between the time when the parents come back home they are left astray you know and they get into bad habits so now we picked up the children they come to our gurukulam after school which is about 2 o'clock in the afternoon we give them lunch every day and then we start giving them tuition we give them academic classes we give them tuition and we take them through the maths and the science and the english and the local malay language and other things so that this education will empower them as they grow up so within this 3 years i don't know how it has happened it is actually beyond my comprehension also we actually opened up 17 gurukulams uh, that means almost every 2 months one was opening up and that's i don't know how we did it it's it's quite incredible we have more than 500 children today with us studying with us on a daily basis 
almost 200 of them uh, have lunch with us when they come back from school. And we see that this formula seems to be working. The more we think about it, the more we realize that this is the right formula. Catch the children when they are young, seven years, eight years old. Take them, give them good foundation in the education. Failing which, if you catch them when they're 15 years and 16 years old, it's too late. That's why somehow, you know, it's beginning to develop in, this, in my mind that even doing youth development may not be the right thing. We should actually focus on children development more than anything else. And I read a very nice quotation a few days ago, said that build a strong new generation rather than try to fix broken men. You know, so if we catch them really young, we can make them strong, successful, educated when they grow up, including our Indian Hindu values given to them in the Gurukulam on a daily basis. Uh, but if we catch them when they are youth and they are already in their 20s and 30s and so on, it's a little bit late. So that, in a nutshell, is what we are doing on the Gurukulam concept. Thank you so much for such a wonderful talk. I haven't read the book yet, and I will. And um, I think the story of manipulation is there uh, in the book. But especially for the uh, youngsters out there who are listening to it, can you give us a small overview of the actual Jati system, where people were actually proud of the Jati that they belonged to? Um, you know, a step back from the story of manipulation and just a small overview for, um, for our viewers out Thank you for asking this question. Okay. We must go back before the invasion, or before even the Mughal invasion. Right? There are records stating that there were more than 60,000 Jatis. British records state there are more than 30,000 Jatis. Okay? The Jati system Okay. In the in the book we have given the meaning of jati. Okay. The, the the exact terminology of the word jati in Sanskrit because I I I'm a yoga teacher, so I read the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. So I can go back up to Patanjali Yoga Sutras where the word jati is mentioned there many times. But the word jati in the Patanjali Yoga Sutra denotes clearly Species. It's not talking about human. It's talking about the various species. They will in in Patanjali Yoga Sutra they will say jati kala desha. Okay, normally they come together. No reincarnation when you are born is specific to jati kala desha. Jati is the species you are born in. Kala is the time period you are born in. Desha is the locality you are born in. Okay, so. You can be born as a tree, you can be born as an animal, as a fish, as a human being. So, where is the higher and lower jati? So, are we going to fight with the fish saying, oh, I'm higher jati, you're lower jati, I eat you. <laughs> Very absurd. But when it comes to humans, oh, I'm higher, you are lower. Okay. So, why the jati system is important? The various professional work that is being done, they had, see, we, we were an advanced civilization before anybody else. Right? So, the various jati system, they had their own merchant groups to protect their work, 
to protect their business. Now the whole world has merchant group. You know, the Fortune 500 is a very high income earning merchant group and it's legal. Everybody looks up to them. Oh, somebody made it to the pops. Billion Ali, somebody is the Fortune 500. But the Fortune 500 is the direct translation of Ainuruvar that is from the Sangam period and Raja Raja Chola period. Ainuruvar means five, group of 500. So the Jati groups were so important and they were so uh, in a very high place in society. I'm not saying one Jati, I'm meaning the whole Jati group because when they came together, they were the ones who built the Nagaram. Nagaram is in English city-state. They funded the building of city-states and the people who lived in the city-state were called Nagarikas, which means citizens of the city-state. Which Madurai is an example in South India. Because Madurai, Nagaram, they call it. Nagaram is a Sanskrit word. So any cities like Dwaraka and all are Nagarams. Right? Opposed to a village or a tribal jungle area. So that's how important the Jati groups were and they were instrumental. If just one more thing, if we go back to the Indus Valley period, okay, till now the archaeologists and research scientists are wondering because in the, I think there's more than 5,000 or 8,000 very cities they found so far. Mohanjaro, Harappa, Dolavira and many more, many more on the northern eastern plain and all that. They could not find a palace in the city states. So they are asking, they, they said these people from the uh, Indus Valley civilization did not have a king. That's how they conclude. But the city state is so precisely planned. They had a worship system. They had drainage. You know, they keep on talking about the drain, but they don't talk about the way of living that was so advanced in. 8,000 BC. The carbon dating has gone back to 8,000 BC. So it's about 10,000 years ago, we already had at once Nagaram cities. So if there was no palace in the city states, then who built the Nagaram? So when we come forward 8,000 years to the Sangam period and we come to the 13th century when Rajaraja Chola ruled because the Kalwats, there are 20,000 Kalwats in South India, that has recorded the history of uh, these uh, South Indian kings, right? So they mentioned that the uh, Jati groups are the one who built the city-state. So it's a, a very good system. Our system, our see nowadays, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, talks. Even uh, when people say nowadays, they talk about the Indian knowledge system. I don't agree to that terminology. Okay. Indian knowledge system is a misnomer. It should be Hindu knowledge system. The Sastras are ours, right? Aryabhata is ours. Buddha is ours. The temples are ours. The canal, the canals that were built in India are ours. The forts, everything is ours. It's from the Hindu knowledge that they build this thing. And the Nagarans were built in this valley was the Hindu. Knowledge system. It's not Indian. Indian means then all other religion comes in. Hindu. So they were so advanced that they had a separation between the power of the king and the power of the merchants. And the merchants sponsored the king to expand. 
Raja Raja Chola was a very good warrior, fighter, and very clever thinker. But the funding was from the Jati group. So this is how important the Jati group is. The French and the British found that this source is the one that is allowing India to be great, and they broke the source by dividing the Jatis. And uh, this is another book we have to talk about it in another book because we have to prove everything we say, right? So that's how important the Jati system and Jati group is. And um, Bharat is amazing. Bharat is amazing. Bharat is perplexing to the whole world. They cannot understand. And 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 we know through the historical records that all the famines in India. I think there was more than 200 famines when the British ruled India. Bengal was so impoverished; they had no food, and it was orchestrated by the British. And this was a mass genocide of the Hindu community mainly, Hindu community, and of course other Indians were there also. So our systems are beautiful. Our systems have been intruded and broken from the Mughal period until the British. And so we have a broken system. Partially, there's a lot of, uh, we're going back to the old system, which gives us our bearing and our balance. But the modernity, you know, to the extent that the constitution also is one of the institutions that the British set up. Constitution also is one of the institutions the British set up. So, it's corrupted, it's bad, but still the renaissance is there and we are, we are coming back. We will come back because there's no other way. Truth always prevails and truth, you know, is in our uh, way of life. Thank you, Guruji. So given the paucity of time, uh, I think this will be the last question. And uh, I would like to put forward that question. It's open for all three of you, whosoever wants to pitch in. Um, so generally, when we talk about caste-based reservation, people come with numerous thoughts, arguments, discussions. So just for the, again, benefit of our young audience primarily, uh, it would be really helpful if uh, you can put your thoughts on the same. Let me answer that because I think I understand it very well. I was asked this question earlier, some time back. Okay. Before the British, there was no problem. Even the Mughals didn't, didn't meddle in this affairs. They only wanted the wealth. The British meddled to divide and rule. So there were a lot of people oppressed because of the criminal tribes. Okay. A lot of the warrior communities, Yatis, were placed under the criminal tribes of 1871, were ostracized from the society, were kept in separate villages outside of the normal villages. They were not allowed to do agriculture. They were not allowed to work. They had to sleep at the vicinity of the police station. And over a time period, there's records in uh, Chennai, Triplicane uh, area, where there were two communities that were placed under, what do you call it? You don't call it house arrest, you call it a locality arrest. They cannot go out without a pass. And there is two warrior, one was the Kallar community from Tanjur, who were the warrior community, and the other one was the Parayar community. Okay, that's another topic we can talk some other day, who were placed 
under um, restriction and they couldn't go out to work without the permission of the police. So these people became extremely poor. And these people uh, received a lot of stigma and they did this from north to south. I only know the South India one. So not the Mahar community from Maharashtra. Ironically, Dr. Ambedkar's community was also used by the British because during the war, uh, they, they were earlier warriors fighting the British. Later, because the British were so powerful, they joined the British to fight against other, other uh, Hindu groups. And then they were ostracized under the CPA placed it, and then they become became the Dalits. So if you look at the history of the Mahar clan and the Kallar and Parayar and all, you will know there's a similarity. And there were more than 500 over Jatis placed under the CTA, and uh, they were not allowed to work, so they didn't have food. So what are they supposed to do? And the abject poverty became a social stigma, and people started looking down at them, and there you get the lower caste what they call it. Okay, most of the OBCs, STs, are come from these uh, 500 Jatis. Although the Indian government after independence in 1952, they denotified the tribes that they have removed them from the Criminal Tribes Act, but the stigma didn't go away. People still look at them and the older generation, I'm not talking about the younger generation, they're not ever. So, for this question, we have to look at the economic class of the population. So in other parts of the world, although the British, you know, they stole and colonized and all that, they look at it from anybody who is in the abject poverty group, they get help for education, for, you know, the single mothers, they get weekly dole money, welfare money so they can eat. Those people who lose their job, they get welfare money so they sustain themselves. So that's West has this system. So in India, it's OBC, ST and all. Of course, there's a lot of, you know, a gray area. But as long as the people are poor and are economically backward, I think any government should help them. We, we take, remove our lands from the OBC, ST and all. If they are poor, the government should help them. So slowly, the awakening is the, the population is the awakening. Slowly, we have to tell the government. And hey, drop the OBC, drop the ST, drop all this branding and say, okay, poor people, come, let's help them. So I think then everybody will come to an understanding that, oh, okay, this is the right thing to do. It's only the branding that is disturbing us. But what they are doing is actually they are helping, right? And uh, But there are gray areas. There are all these people who manipulate. They are, don't deserve it, but they will try to gain money or all that. So then we have to Slowly, I know. But what Guruji is saying is uh, uh, like what you mentioned from caste-based reservation, it probably have to grow into a need-based reservation. Because I'm sure there are many people in so-called, so-called caste who are already doing well, already progressing, right? So it's got to go to, it's got to evolve into a need-based reservation. Then I think everything will become well. Thank you so much uh, to all three of you for a very beautiful session. Uh, we were really glad to host you and we look forward to stay connected uh, in the future as well. Thank you so much for having Namaste. us. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.